whether, whether it's a road trip you're starting off on and the car is loaded and you've got your snacks and you hit the road, or whether you arrive at an airport and you get through TSA and you're just waiting in the terminal, um, whether it's a train or uh, a cruise, wh- whatever it is, starting off a trip is, is uh, so exciting. Now, now the tail end, not so much. You're, you're tired, maybe you've spent too much money, you're just ready to get home, no stops, pedal to the metal, straight to the house, um, but beginning a trip is exciting. I, I, hope, I hope you're excited as we uh, begin uh, this missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Now, if, if you're familiar with the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, you'll know there are three missionary journeys in which Paul goes out to evangelize and preach and train. He's planting churches, training leaders, and he's doing so all over the eastern and central Mediterranean region. And last week we saw the start of this first journey. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark get in a boat. And they sail from Antioch in, in Syria to the island of Cyprus. And there they preach, and the proconsul, who is essentially the Roman governor of Cyprus, comes to faith in Christ. Well, today we're going to see this group leave Cyprus, and they're going to sail north to the mainland of what we would call modern-day Turkey. They'll briefly be on the coast, and then they're going to travel inland And we'll see five different cities before making their way back. And the province that they are about to enter is one that is probably familiar with you. Um, They're going to bring the the gospel into uh, the province of Galatia. And for those of you who love that New Testament book, this is uh, going to be the start of the church there in Galatia. And what I'm going to do with the sermon today is to look at Paul's sermon. This is actually the first sermon we have recorded that Paul gives. This is not Paul's first sermon, but it's the first one that Luke writes down for us. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we do, there's a couple introductory matters that we need to get through. The first is places and names. Now, I know Some of us are directionally challenged. Uh, Geography may not be the easiest thing uh, for some of us, especially when you mix in names that are not modern-day names. And so I I just want to be very clear about where we are and where we're going before we look at the sermon. They're setting off from the island of Cyprus, which is in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. They're in the town of Paphos, right on the very western tip of Cyprus. They're going to get on a boat, go north until they hit modern-day Turkey, and they will land in the city of Perga, which is in the region of Pamphylia. So Perga is the city, Pamphylia is the region. They'll be there briefly, and then they head north uh, to another city named Antioch. Right? We all know it is very possible for people, for places to have 
or cities to be named after one another. Um, I, I remember I've lived in Mississippi my entire life. But when I moved to Corinth, I found that for the first time when someone is talking about Jackson, you can't just assume which Jackson they're talking about. Growing up in Starkville, uh, if you said, I'm going to Jackson, everyone knew you're talking about Jackson, Mississippi. In Corinth, not so. Uh, you've got Jackson, Tennessee, an hour up the road. Uh, two cities by the same names. Uh, but You have to distinguish them. Um, by state. Well, you have the same thing here. You have two cities named after an important leader, a guy by the name of Antiochus. You've got Antioch in Syria, third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And then you have this other Antioch, which is in the region, uh, in the region of Pisidia. It's a smaller city in the mountains. And that's where they're Headed, So they leave the coast, head north into the mountains to Antioch in Pisidia. Second introductory matter is that we see John Mark leaves them. This is John Mark, Barnabas' nephew. John Mark who came along with them to assist them from Syria. This is John Mark, the same person who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... Uh, writes the Gospel of Mark. Once they reach Perga, he leaves them. Now, we're going to come back to this in Acts 15, so I'm not going to say too much today. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement, and they split and go separate ways. Um, That's over John Mark. And there's lots of speculation as to why John Mark leaves. Uh, Again, I'm not going to spend much time here, but one of the most convincing arguments I've seen is that he was not comfortable with the shift in leadership. Up to this point, you've been seeing Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. But now it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and John Mark's uncle. Maybe he had a problem with that. We, we aren't sure, but we do know that he leaves them. And we know that Paul was not happy about this. He viewed John Mark as a deserter, which is why he does not want to partner up with him again in Acts 15. So isn't this a humbling reminder to us? We can get so frustrated um, as we work together as the body of Christ. Uh, Isn't it it a bit, we might find it surprising that even folks the likes of Paul and Barnabas, uh, their journey is not without trouble. So John Mark heads back to Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas take the road and begin to climb an elevation up to Antioch and Pisidia. And there Paul is invited to preach. We're going to look at that sermon, but before we do, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, pray that by your Spirit we would be enabled to read and mark and digest your Word this morning. Father, we know that in it uh, is life. Um, In it is the wisdom of God, And would you impart that to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.
Acts 13, 13. We'll read verses 13 through 42. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he was raised, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, 
you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So Paul and Barnabas make their way to Antioch in Pisidia. And we're told that on the Sabbath day, they go to the synagogue. Um, Now, when you come in on the Lord's Day for worship, you pretty much know what's going to happen if you've come here several times. Um, Some churches are not this way. Uh, You never really know what's going to happen on Sunday morning. Um, Our hymns might surprise you. You may not know which hymns. We change those up every Sunday. You may not know which, which text is being preached on. But the basic order of how we worship is going to be the same every single Lord's Day. The same is true with the synagogue. When they would gather on the Sabbath in the synagogue, there were two readings. You would read from the law, and you would read from the prophets. And then after those readings, the floor would be opened, where someone could stand and teach. They could exposit from the Scriptures. We see Jesus do this in Luke 4. He stands up and takes the scroll of Isaiah and reads it and says, This has been fulfilled in your midst. This is also what Paul and Barnabas are doing. It's probably their standard practice. When they would travel to a new city, they would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and they would sit and wait and they would listen to the two readings. And then the floor would open up and they'd say, Do any brothers have a message to share with us? And they would say, I do. And they would stand up and they would preach Christ. That's what happens today. They're invited. Would you stand up and give a word of encouragement? And Paul says, yes, sir. And the first thing Paul is going to do, the first thing we see him doing is establishing common ground with these Jews. His brothers. He's establishing common ground. He's beginning with their common history. And he's reminding them of God's gracious acts toward them. He begins with the patriarchs. Verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. Who is Paul talking about here? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Did these men come seeking God? No. God sought them. God sought this family, this family that was not really all that special. 
But God comes to Abraham and says, I am going to make you a people. Not only am I going to make you a people, you are going to be my people. And I'm going to be your God. God chose the fathers. And not only that, he he made this family into a great nation. We see this. God made the people great during their stay in the land in Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. So you remember back to the beginning of Exodus. I think it's Exodus 2. We see that the nation just blows up. It expands. It's multiplying. The families are prospering. And and Pharaoh is insecure by the growth of this people. And he says, let us enslave the Hebrews lest they overrun the nation and we Egyptians become a minority in our own country. God prospered the people and then he led them out of Egypt. This is a reference to the Exodus, the the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, bringing them out. And then once they're out, verse 18, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. He put up with them. You know, I, I heard someone quote the King James here. Sometimes the King James really makes me smile. The translation here is, for about 40 years, he suffered their manners. He suffered their manners. There's 40 years of whining and complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. And oh, can we tell you about the wondrous food we had in Egypt? And we just want to go back there. Now as a parent, I've gotten a taste of this. You want to do something special and fun for your children. And then it's unappreciated. There might be some whining and some complaining. And next time you just want to say, all right, I'm going to take your sister to the playground and I'll leave you at home if it was so painful for you. God suffered his people's manners for 40 years. Not only that, he gives them a home. A land to call their own. Right? Verse 19. After destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So this is the conquest, the, the book of Joshua. I mean, you, you can just think, how, how, did, how did these slaves who had been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, how did they come in and drive out seven nations that were entrenched in the land of Canaan? How did that happen? God did it. God did this. God drove them out. You remember the city of Jericho. All they did was march and blow horns and yell. And the walls collapsed. God did this. God has done everything. He chose them. He grew them. He freed them. He put up with them. And then he fights for them. He does everything. And then come the judges. Verse 20. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. What's the deal with the judges? You remember judges were not kings. They're judges. They were not elected. They were special people that God would raise up at a particular time for a particular reason to deliver the people when they were in trouble. And the basic cycle was the people would be unfaithful. 
They would wander from God. They would worship other gods, and then God would deliver them into the hands of their enemies. And then they would cry out and ask for help. And God would raise up a judge to deliver them, and then the cycle would repeat. But what's important was that these judges were not kings. So if the judges weren't kings, who was their king? It was God. God was their king. But surprise, uh, surprise, they weren't content with this. They looked around at the other nations and said, oh, that neighboring country, they have a man as their king. It's like keeping up with the Joneses. We want what other people have. We want that. God, we don't want you to be our king. We want a man to be our king. We want to be like the rest of the world. So God gave them what they wanted. Verse 21 and 22. They asked for a king and God gave them Saul, who reigned for 40 years. You can go back and look at the life and reign of Saul. He was a complete failure. He looked like the perfect king. And yet he was a disaster. And God removes him from office and then raises up King David. And this is kind of the climax of this first part of the sermon. Paul goes all the way from Abraham and gets to this king who ruled as Israel is entering the the golden age when the territory is expanding and it's it's wealthy and prosperous. Uh, This warrior poet who is leading them who's described as a man after God's own heart. This is the same king, King David, who God will come to and promise and say, one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. And of course we know David has his grievous failures. They're well known. But despite those sins, the Lord saw David's heart and knew that he loved to do the will of his heavenly father. And so the people, these Jews in the synagogue, would, would have looked to David as a model He was a model of the great king that would come. This is the foundation Paul is laying. He's establishing this common ground. Remember God's saving acts. God did this. He did that. He chose. He saved. He delivered. He patiently endured. He fought for. He gave King David... Our history can only be explained by the gracious acts of God. And at this point, everyone would be in complete agreement. Paul would have gotten hear hears from the back row and someone would say amen or preach. He's got the common ground. But he can't stay there. He's got to show them what all this family history is pointing towards. Or who it was pointing towards. Who is the greater son of David? Paul's going to have to leave this common ground. And when he does, it's inevitably going to be controversial. 
I read, um, Dr. Albert Moeller made a comment, and he said, Common ground only serves as a launching pad, not a place of rest. Common ground is a launching pad, not a place of rest. You know what that means? We can't be content to simply find common ground with a person and just stay there. You know, I think so much of so much of our conversation today is just trying to find places in which we can agree. It could be for various reasons. Maybe we don't know our position enough well, well enough to defend it, and so we'll just settle with common ground. Maybe we don't want to be offensive or we don't want to make people mad, and so we just find common ground and stay there. Maybe it's just kind of the postmodern influence uh, that postmodernism says there is no truth. You have your truth and my truth, and you believe what you want. I'll believe what I want as long as you don't hurt me and don't infringe on my rights. We're okay. And we're just content to live on common ground. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's got to be the case with politics. If you're going to get anything accomplished, you've got to find common ground. But when it comes to issues like sin and forgiveness and a holy God, we can't be content to stay on common ground. We, we can't be content to find, to just merely find places where we agree with people who are apart from Christ. We can't be content to say, oh, well, we'll, we'll agree to disagree with those who are still in their sin. Common ground is a good place to start, but we can't stay there. We have to, like Paul, point them to the one and only Savior. And again, leaving common ground will be controversial. But it is loving. You see, Paul over and over again says, brothers, brothers, brothers. These are his people. He loves them. We, we see that elsewhere in, in his epistles. He has great love for these people. He wants them to come to know Christ. He's not, he's not speaking to them from a point of pride or I've, I've figured this out. I've, I've reached enlightenment and y'all are still struggling in ignorance. No, he loves his people. And he's leading them to the Savior. He's got to show them what their common history was moving towards, the man Christ Jesus. He says, I'm going to show you the one that you've been longing for. His name is Jesus. We see this in verse 23. Of King David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Again, God is still working. Who brought Israel a Savior? God brought Israel the Savior. Israel did not find the Savior or discover the Savior. He goes on, John the Baptist announced his coming. These people probably would have been familiar with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a big name. He was a famous name, and yet what does he remind them of something John the Baptist said? That the most menial task that the lowest servant in the house would do 
the, ser- the lowest servant in the house would get on their knees and untie the sandals of the master of the house. And John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. John recognized who Jesus really was. But the important leaders in Jerusalem didn't. Those learned scholars who read from Old Testament prophets every Sabbath, they didn't understand the very things they were reading. They couldn't recognize the fulfillment of those readings, even when the fulfillment was standing right in front of them. And unknowingly, they actually fulfilled the words of the prophets by condemning Jesus Christ. They fulfilled every word by having him killed. They crucified him. They laid him in a tomb. What does Paul say? He does not stay in the tomb. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses. He's saying, guys, brothers, David and Solomon's reign isn't the golden age. It is not the climax of your history. This is the greatest. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God that he has inaugurated. This is the great event that the entire history of Israel has been moving towards. All of God's gracious acts of the past have been moving towards this one person. All promises are fulfilled in him. And then Paul quotes several Old Testament scriptures. He goes to Psalm 2 and he says, Jesus is the one, he is the exalted son of God that Psalm 2 is speaking of. He is the one who has received the holy and sure blessings of David. He is the one, he is the holy one who did not see corruption. You know, where are David's bones right now? Where are David's bones? They're dust in the Middle East. Where's Jesus? His body laid in the tomb for three days and it never began the process of decomposition. Never. Lazarus was in the tomb for three days. John 11. He's in the tomb for three days. And again, to go back to the King James, he stinketh. Why did he stinketh after three days? His body began to see corruption. Jesus' body never did. All because of the promises of God. And I want you to notice something here. Paul is laying out a history. He's beginning with Abraham and coming all the way to the present. And he's pointing out these historical events. The calling of Abraham, the growth of the nation, the deliverance from Egypt, living in the wilderness, the conquest, the judges, the kings, the life of John the Baptist. The trial, crucifixion, resurrection of Christ, which was witnessed by over 500 people. All of these are historical events. Paul is not coming to them and telling them some new philosophy. He doesn't have some new theory that he's presenting and wants them to adopt. He's telling them what has happened in time and space. All the way from Abraham to the resurrection. 
Now, I've got a quote here that's, I, th I think, an important application for us to remember. It comes from James Montgomery Boyce. I'm going to read it slowly. Listen to this quote. Christianity is not just a philosophy or a set of ethics, though it involves these things. Essentially, Christianity is a proclamation of facts that concern what God has done. We've seen that, haven't we? Voice continues, That is why Christianity is not malleable. Sometimes people try to remake Christianity, thinking a new version might be more acceptable to our contemporaries. But this does not work. And the reason it does not work is that whether we like it or not, Christianity constantly brings us up against the facts. Rather than trying to change them, we have to learn first to conform our thinking and conduct to these facts, and second, to proclaim not our own ideas, but these very facts to other people, end quote. I love that description. Christianity is not merely a philosophy or set of ethics to live by. It is a proclamation of what God has done. Christianity is not just about a man named Jesus who came and said, be nice to people. It's a message of what God has done in history. And because of that, it's a message we can't change. So Paul lays the common ground of their shared history. He builds off of that common ground and shows them the fulfillment of all the promises of God in Jesus. And then we get to verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So through this man, Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. What frees you from your sins is not your strict faithful adherence to the law of Moses. It's believing in Jesus. Paul is speaking to a room full of people who were very much like ourselves and our neighbors, folks who were hoping that they could be good enough to be okay with God, hoping that they could follow the rules and be a good person, and this would free them from their guilt. But Paul says freedom doesn't come through the law. The law, in this sense, is more of a check engine light. It's going to flash and tell you something is wrong, but it is not going to fix what is wrong. You need a Savior. Later, probably writing to the same people, the Galatians. In Galatians 2.16, Paul says... Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul uses the word justified there in Galatians 2. It's actually the same word we see in verse 38. We see the word freed in two places in verse 38. 
It has the same meaning as justified. You are freed, justified by faith in Christ, not your adherence to the law of Moses. Now, I want to ask you what justified means. I'm not going to give you an answer from the catechism this morning. I want to just give you a simpler definition. One I've heard, uh, this is, I call this the Bubba version of justification. Justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. Now, this is not saying that we have never sinned, not at all. You're simply saying that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we can stand before God as if we'd never sinned. When you think about the insert we had in our bulletin today, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, not my adherence to the law, not my faithfulness, not my obedience, not my good works, not my honesty, not my commitment to my family, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. Paul stands before them and says, it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not the law, that we are justified. Now for many of us, this is how we would leave the sermon on this high note, this great crescendo of justification by grace through faith alone, but not the Apostle Paul. What does he do? He gives them a warning. Verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes, Can anyone not look and tell me where this is from? Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You know what Habakkuk is talking about? He's living prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be surrounded and destroyed by the Babylonians. They will surround the city. They will shut it down, starve the people out. The book of Lamentations comes from this time. People are so desperate, they're eating horses' heads. The head of a horse cost a year's salary. That's how desperate the people are. And eventually the Babylonians come in. Many people are killed. The rest are hauled off into captivity in Babylon. And Habakkuk is writing this warning before the destruction. And this destruction comes in 586. So here's, here's Paul's application. It's a, it applies for us as well. Paul is saying, if, if God would send the Babylonians to judge the unbelief and the idolatry and the faithlessness of his people, if, if he would allow Jerusalem to be completely destroyed by these pagans, 
If he would allow his temple to be destroyed and ransacked and have all the, all the precious things in the temple brought back to Babylon, if he would allow that to happen to those who were his Old Testament people, will he not do the same to you living in this time? If he will punish those who spurned his prophets, what will he do to those who spurn his son? Don't reject his grace. Don't reject the provision he has made for you in Jesus Christ. And I want to end with Psalm 2, which was quoted earlier as an exhortation for us. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of what you have done and what you are doing. Would we not presume upon your grace? Would we not presume upon your kindness and think, oh, the grumpy Old Testament God is gone. Now we have a nice God of love who really doesn't care how we live or what we believe. God, we know you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we stand before you uncondemned because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and that alone. Father, would we flee to him? Would we kiss the son? Would we take refuge in him that we might know peace and life eternal? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.